Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Building Efficiency Podcast presented by Nenny and Associates. I'm your host, Jim Schaefer. Now, if this is your first time tuning in, Nenny and Associates is an executive search firm focused on the building efficiency industry, hence why we named the podcast the way that we did. And simply put, we help our clients find the right talent. Each week, we sit down with leaders from the industry to discuss their backgrounds, how they got started, and where they see the industry heading. We also get to know our guests and find out what drives them to be successful. And on today's episode, episode 32, we sit down with Claudia Mir, who is a clean tech industry executive who held prominent roles with Clark Construction, Dalkia, and most recently with Alpha Structure. Claudia walks us through her background and lessons learned in her executive level positions, especially as it relates to mergers and acquisitions and structured, fi- structured finance. You'll, of course, want to stick around until the end to hear about Claudia's advice that she give to her 22-year-old self and what she wants her lasting legacy to be. Now, if you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe to our channel and consider downloading this episode and future episodes. This is the only way that we can really track how many people are listening. So if you're one of those people who are streaming the episodes, I urge you to consider hitting that download button instead. And and if you're getting value from these conversations, please share them and leave a five-star review on our page. We think you're going to enjoy this conversation with Claudia. So let's drop in. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Building Efficiency Podcast. Today we're sitting down with Claudia Mir, who is an executive and a board member in the clean tech industry. Claudia, welcome to the show. Jim, thanks so much for inviting me here. It's great to be here. I guess before we launch into your experience and everything that you've accomplished in the industry, what I wanted to do is just rewind the clock for a second. Can you tell us about a little bit about your background, maybe where you grew up and, and just kind of how you started your professional career? Sure. Happy to. So I grew up in New York City, one of those few people that actually can say born and raised in Manhattan um, and uh, started my career or started my experiences at the ethical culture and Fieldston school. So ethics was an important part of my my daily learning. Um, grew up in Manhattan in the battle days of the 70s and early 80s. So uh, one of our First memories is having some mugger money under my uh, in the insoles of my shoes, so that uh, in case we ever got mugged, we were able to uh, have something to offer up. So uh, life in Manhattan is not like life in Manhattan today, but it was a fantastic experience uh, growing up in a in a multicultural diversity. I want anyone who's listening to this to to send me a message if you have a similar experience to that as uh, as Claudia. So I, th- I think that's the first time I've I've heard that. Uh, uh, that scenario, mugger money, having having that in your shoes. So that, that's got to be pretty, pretty unique. All right. So that that's what, a little bit of a glimpse of what it was like growing up. And then um, I guess if you could, you know, tell us a little bit about, yeah, again, um, your experience and then how you landed here in the industry. I uh, went off to college at the University of Pennsylvania, which was a great experience in Philadelphia and uh, ended up working in some multinational firms during college and right after uh, worked at uh, Philip, what was Philip Morris um, and Wharton Econometrics in Philadelphia. And then after graduate school at Harvard, I joined JP Morgan in M&A and corporate finance and sort of joined the investment banking world, which was, I think, really a theme in everything that I've done through my career is really the sort of strategy and um, and kind of why does these two organizations should come together, kind of where the uh, one plus one equals three um, and then I kind of fast forward when we moved down to the D.C. area, I was in technology and hospitality and then I joined an organization called Clark, which is a major real estate development and construction firm and created their public private partnership group focused on developing large infrastructure projects. 
And then uh, right around the time of the financial market uh, downturn, uh, realized that the energy space was an area in particular in energy infrastructure where we could add a lot of value for hospitals and universities that couldn't take advantage of the tax credits and tax incentives, but needed the development of energy infrastructure. So created our energy and structured finance group and led the development of a number of different types of infrastructure projects. And then moved over to Dalkia, which is a division of EDF, uh, and joined them to run their M&A practice and build the business in the U.S. They had actually previously been in a, a multi-environment uh, joint venture with Veolia, and then Dalkia was separated and EDF needed to replant the flag in the U.S., so it was a great opportunity really um, with a blank slate to say, where do they want to be? And um, the, we ended up acquiring two different businesses, one an energy efficiency company focused more on building solutions, and then a second, a small scale CHP business also focused on building scale uh, onsite power generation. And that was a great experience. And then moved into the CEO role where I ran the US operations for over a year. And then most recently joined um, a new venture created by Carlisle Global Infrastructure Fund and Schneider Electric called Alpha Structure as uh, chief investment officer and CFO. And that was exciting because it was really going back to the energy as a service space that I had started at Clark, focused on helping to deliver infrastructure projects and on-site power generation projects for clients using outside capital and creative solutions. Wow, so ton of experience there. I think everything you've you've touched on is is you know certain themes that we've covered here on, on the podcast. So I wanted to just unpack that a little bit. Maybe let's let's go back to Clark for a second. You mentioned public private partnerships, and and that's a, again that's another thing that we've talked a lot about with some of our you know ESCO guests that have come on. I think that's become more and more of a, a topic of conversation. And um, I guess what was it like? You, you mentioned that was at least 10, 12 years ago. How long ago were you? Were yes, you, were actually, you uh, I was actually Clark for 15 years. So 15 it, was, years. it was a long okay. stretch organization. Um, and so we started developing public private partnerships really when they were in their infancy in the US. Yeah. Yeah, so I imagine. Um, had some great traction doing a transportation road project uh, by Dulles Airport, uh, some private, some school projects that were brought in private capital to develop public schools. Uh, a, um, a courthouse project in LA, a variety of different social and um, uh, education and transportation infrastructure projects. So a, a great experience, but those are complex projects that take a long time to get off the ground and have a lot of fits and starts. Um, and so I see that as a great way to bring in a marriage of public and private infrastructure. And, and I think that's a lot of what the energy as a service market does as well. In many cases, it's a way to bring in outside capital. It may be private, private, working with the commercial industrial space, but really looking at ways that outside parties can help solve infrastructure solutions. Yeah, and if you've seen, obviously, that the model probably has remained its its or maintained its core competency, right? The model probably hasn't changed, but have you seen an evolution of public-private partnerships, or what have you noticed just over the last? 10 or 12 years, because I've only started hearing about it more recently, I'd say over the last three or four years, we're starting to see it, especially like in the higher education space. Uh, when you think about asset monetization and, and you know, the different funding 
mechanisms that uh, these universities are running into. So I guess what have you noticed there, like any particular trends just in the last 10 or 12 years as it pertains to P3? I think, you know, uh, financial challenges has bred creativity. Sure. I think that, uh, you know, in the U.S., public-private partnerships have still really been in their infancy. They were really um, much more actively developed in Europe and in Canada. And, you know, I saw a lot of um, uh, enthusiasm and implementation in in California, for example, where they really encountered a lot of financial challenges. And so the idea of of needing to still deliver kinds of infrastructure and recognizing that they didn't have the capital available themselves. And I think that that's the same theme here where you're seeing universities, for example, Ohio State, Iowa State, where they're saying, you know, really, we need to focus on deploying our capital in areas that are really core to our our mission and our um, our priorities. And so things that are perhaps a little bit more back of the house areas where we don't have the the um, staff or we don't have the additional capital to deploy, that it makes more sense to bring in an able, knowledgeable third party to take that risk and that responsibility off our plate and to manage that for us over the long term. So I I think, especially in the university space, I think that's going to be an increasing trend where um, the bringing of outside capital knowledge and risk transfer is going to be really important. And the other thing you mentioned that uh, that caught my ear that I'm always curious and fascinated by is just the mergers and acquisitions world. So I, I guess I'm curious, is there any any story that you could tell our audience? You can leave the names out if you want, but maybe like a, a merger acquisition scenario where felt like everything was wrapped up and maybe at the 11th hour, it went south. Anything that you could tell us, any interesting stories there when it comes to mergers and acquisitions? Uh, well, there's, there are many stories in that regard. I would say, you know, um, it, it, at the end of the day, any kind of M&A deal is really about the people and mm. really what you're buying to a large extent is um, is a management team and, and an ability to deliver on the, uh, the you know, the planned, um, uh, you know, capabilities. So I would say a lot of, you know, what's happened at times has been, you know, numbers were based on, num- on uh, or valuations are based on numbers that were projected. And then at the end of the day, they don't come in. And so you're in a, a little bit of a scramble on how to address that. Um, I think we have earnouts and different kinds of incentives to keep management in place for some period of time. And sometimes if, if over time, different events happen that make those structures perhaps less um, directly uh, clear in terms of the payouts, that can be a big challenge. Um, I would say, you know, to me, the biggest challenge is integration. I mean, really, again, coming back to, you know, the core of why you're doing M&A is you you see that business as really adding something to your organization and how to not destroy value while you're going through the process of trying to bring the two firms together. Uh, And culture, really trying to find not only a good financial fit, but a really good cultural fit where the organizations can um, work collaboratively together. Yeah, I imagine that culture piece is, is key. You know, that, that's one thing that we're constantly evaluating on our side of the desk, uh, making sure that we're lining up the right the right candidates with our clients. And someone may look great on paper, right experience, but you really got to keep an eye on the culture piece. So, you know, that's, uh, that's really cool to hear. So, so let's hover out for a second. So you obviously had a ton of experience with Clark and then with Dalkia and then Alpha Structure. So what I was curious about, and you've done a lot, right? A lot of um, unique challenges and accomplishments that are, I'm sure, on your your resume. Or you look back, like that was a really cool thing. 
But what was like, uh, what would you say, like, what are your one or two key takeaways from your experience here so far? I would say, you know, just the ability, what I love about the clean energy space is, is the ability to be creative and um, the, the space is changing constantly with new technology, new funding um, mechanisms, and an increasing awareness and, um, and enthusiasm for addressing resilience, which is interesting. When I first got in this space, you know, about 12 years ago, um, resilience was more conceptual, but now that we've had more and more severe weather issues and had have outages um, and had, you know, organizations that maybe have robotics or different things like that, where you can even quantify the consequence of losing power, even if it's brief. Um, there's just an increasing focus on these issues, which to me is, is really exciting. Um, I would say, you know, also, I, I think it's the where is the industry going that where is the, you know, kind of the, the technological solutions as well as the business structure solutions that have been really exciting. Um, I'm, I'm sort of a, a transaction junkie. I love working on deals and I love the idea of kind of creating that value. And so seeing where the opportunities may lie. Yeah. Well, you touched on an, uh, an important word there, resilience. I think that uh, that's given me an idea for who, uh, who should be my next guest. So if anyone's listening to this, specializing in resiliency, I think we need to bring their perspective on uh, our, our next uh, guest on the show here. So no, I think that's I think that's good. So you've you've touched on it already, but I guess I, I'm curious as you like look at uh, look at the future of the industry, and you could take this from like a lot of different angles. But like, where do you see the industry heading? Is is it energy services? Is it P three? Is it resiliency? I mean, like, what what are your thoughts on just kind of the next five or ten years here in the clean tech space? Well, I think it's really all of them. I mean, I think there's going to be, ha- be a need for multiple solutions. There's no one one answer. Um, I do think energy as a service is a great paradigm, and I think it's increasingly uh, powerful for organizations as they start to say, you know, capital's dear, especially during COVID. I think many organizations have said, you know, I, I, I are much more concerned about how to use their capital most appropriately to to shore up their Based business, so the ability to bring outside capital into a project uh, or into a situation and and have the de- delivery of that project infrastructure still occur, it, I think is really powerful. I think there's a lot of money chasing these kinds of projects. So at the end of the day, it's really about finding that sort of creative deal solution that really fits the risk transfer, the returns, and the resilience. You know, all of that together. Um, and so, yeah, to me, I think, especially in the commercial industrial space and in fleet electrification, more in the mid-scale project area as opposed to the super large, there's going to be a lot of reasons for using the energy as a service solution model. Um, I think that will also bring a lot of new technology development um, that will help to facilitate new concepts. So, for example, I think natural gas will will be needed for the next, I don't know, you know, 15 years. But there's an increasing focus on making renewable natural gas, hydrogen, alternative fuels more and more cost competitive. And so that will be a new trend that will be driving the industry. Um, And I think that, you know, battery storage is another area where if you looked five years ago, battery storage was really prohibitive in cost. And now more and more, there's better, newer technologies, longer life batteries, more um, 
cost-effective battery implementations. And I think that there will be greater ways to use batteries to help support the grid in ways so that um, you know the loads can be shifted to manage the infrastructure. Yeah, well, I didn't anticipate this happening, but you're giving me all sorts of ideas for uh, for new guests. And you mentioned battery storage. I'm like, all right, now I need a battery storage person to come on. So uh, hopefully someone's <laughs> listening to this specializing. So that, that's really good, uh, really good stuff there, Claudia. I appreciate your insight there. What I wanted to do is transition to the last part of the show here. These are the same four questions that I ask to every guest who comes on the Building Efficiency Podcast. And I wanted to start off and ask you, what are your daily non-negotiables? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I would say I'm someone who really cannot uh, function super well with not enough sleep. So I would say a minimum of seven hours of sleep a night is pretty non-negotiable. Um, time to reflect, I think, is really a non-negotiable. I guess that's one of the things that going through the COVID experience, especially, uh, has been really important is to be able to take a step back. Because as someone uh, said early to me in the in the process, it's kind of like blurs day. Every day is a blur. You're not sure what the day of the week is or which day or what the date is because it's, it has this kind of a surreal, repetitive process. So just really being able to reflect and spend time with family uh, and just find ways to laugh and just to kind of, uh, you know, try to find some lightheartedness in, in life. Um, and then I guess the other daily non-negotiable is working in, a, in an environment or being with people where there's really a sense of collaboration and brainstorming. I've, I find that I really, um, I get so energized by that, that it's really exciting to just bounce ideas off of one another. Yeah, you definitely don't want to underrate sleep. So what, what advice would you give to your 22-year-old self? Oh, I think the advice that many of us feel looking back is, you know, don't focus on the small stuff. It's so easy to get caught up in the day-to-day ups and downs of your life and things that don't go as, as you would have hoped they would be. But to really focus on the journey and the relationships you form, the people you touched and who touched you at the end of the day, when you look back on it all, I think that's really what's going to matter. Um you know, having a vision, I would say, of where you want to go, but also taking advantage of the opportunities that present themselves along the way that really might be outside of your vision. I didn't actually originally think I was going to go into the mergers and acquisition space. Uh, it was really kind of anecdotal. The person who was running the international capital markets area of the bank of JP Morgan moved over to become head of M&A while I was in the training program and asked me if I wanted to join him. And I said, yes. So, I mean, it really ended up dictating my whole career in a kind of fortuitous way. And and I I wouldn't trade that for anything. Um, And I think just challenging yourself or myself and really taking on new and different roles and being open to making those changes, making more changes, perhaps, just so that I was always adding um, new skills and experiences to my toolkit. And I guess la- last, I'd say laugh more, you know, try not to take it all so seriously and try and find some, you know, fun and good humor in the journey. I think that's great advice. We're going to have to copy and paste this clip and send it to uh, all the new graduates. I think they could uh, definitely benefit from uh, from your wisdom there. So I think that's great. And what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, I, you know, I am, you know, kind of, as I said before, I think I'm someone who really just loves to bounce ideas off of, of, you know, other people, kind of that, you know, kind of constant dialogue and, you know, creative deal structuring, finding that and, and implementing that win-win 
um, developing real partnerships with other people where we each have each other's backs. I think that's huge. And um, I think going back to my ethical culture school roots, I would say integrity, honesty, and honoring someone, my commitments. I think those are really, really important issues. And I, I really respect and, and enjoy working with people who feel the same way. And last question here, what do you want your lasting legacy to be? I guess I would say if that I added value and perspective to the organizations I was part of, that I strove for creativity and helped um, organizations enter new businesses, make acquisitions or restructure their businesses and really created value that way, uh, that I was always honest and direct and and my word was my bond, so to speak, and um, that I was a good leader who was able to mentor people that I you know, I kind of saw, and that's hard. It's really leadership, especially in times of stress. Uh, I would say that I, you know, finding the ways to keep people motivated and energized when there's a lot of change going on, change is hard for everyone. And I, that I was a caring friend, spouse, and parent who always uh, went the extra mile to help help someone achieve their goals. Well, I think that's a perfect way to to wrap up the show here. So, Claudia, thanks a lot for the time and thanks for coming on the podcast. Jim, thanks so much. It's been great. Yeah, you got it. Thank you. All right, there you have it. Episode 32 with Claudia Mir. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And if you did enjoy it, please be sure to subscribe to our channel wherever you enjoy listening to your favorite podcast. Now, we hope you're sharing with your friends and colleagues as well. And one last thing, if you have any ideas for future guests from the industry, please reach out to me. We'd love to hear from you, loyal listeners. So until next time, I'm Jim Schaefer, and we'll catch you on the next episode.